0: How many of you have a sibling? Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Okay, so most of you are going to be able to relate to this. Did you ever argue or fight with your siblings growing up? Anybody? See, if you're like me, you have a selective memory, and usually it was the sibling's fault. I remember one time, uh uh-oh, my mother is here. If I lie, just keep quiet. I don't remember how old we were, and I don't remember that I did anything to deserve this. My brother Bill comes out of the house chasing me with a butcher knife from the kitchen. (laughs) For whatever reason, he had problems. (laughs) And I honestly don't remember what I did, but I'm sure it was bad enough that I could still outrun him, so I knew I could stay away from him and laugh at him and just make him more mad And it was really funny, except not to him. And then when mother came out the door and yelled at us, it wasn't funny to anybody. But we all have these issues with our siblings growing up. But no matter what, and I hope this is true for all of us, but no matter what, when it comes right down to it, we love our siblings and we've got their back. My siblings can pick on me, but you best not pick on my siblings It's just kind of a rule that most of us kind of live by. It was not totally true for a couple of twins that we read about in the Bible. They were siblings, but they didn't get along. Matter of fact, it tells us in Genesis that they started fighting in the mother's womb. They didn't get along at all. They were really angry with one another. In Genesis 25, you can read about that. And then as you read a little bit further in this story, and the thing is, these were kids coming from a great heritage. Abraham was their grandpa. Isaac was their father. And then there's these twins, Jacob and Esau. And it was trouble from the womb, it was trouble at birth, and it was trouble for a long time. Matter of fact, some of you probably remember the story in Genesis where they talks about Esau came in from the field. He was dad's favorite, kinda, because he liked to hunt. He liked to eat red meat. He was kinda rough and gruffy. He came in from the field one day, and you know how sometimes we overstate things? He comes in from the field, and there's Jacob, mother's favorite, making some red stew. And he comes in from the field, and he says, I am starving to death. Starving to death. How many of you know that probably wasn't true, right? I'm starving to death, and and his brother says, "No, no, this is stew. It's not for you." And he said, "I tell you what. I will trade my birthright for a bowl of soup." Now we may think, "What the heck's that mean?" A Birthright back in those days was a big deal. That went to the firstborn son. You had you were the you had the birthright, and that meant you got a double portion of your dad's inheritance, whatever it was going to be, and you got the blessing, the first blessing of the father. And also in that particular lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob and Esau, the blessings, the family blessings would be carried on out through primarily the oldest son. So he is saying, I will trade all of that for a bowl of soup. Whatever Jacob was, he was not foolish. He said, here's the soup. And he had the birthright. And if you know the story, you know that a little bit further along, but with his mother's help, they deceived dad. Not only to get his birthright, but to get his blessing. His dad's sight was bad, and and they put a hairy fur thing on his arm because Esau was kind of furry. He had a lot of hair in his body. And he went in to get the blessing. Deceiving dad with the help of mom. And he stole the blessing. So he had... Taken the birthright for a bowl of soup. And he lied and deceived and got the blessing. Now we can fast forward a thousand years almost. And the two families are still hating one another. I mean, you think the Hatfield and McCoys was a feud in America. It was nothing compared to this. They both had gotten married. And Jacob went on to become the nation of Israel. Esau got married and went on to become the nation of Edom. And the Edomites and the Israelites couldn't get along. Some of you may remember during the Exodus, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, they got to a city called Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh. And that's where they said, let's send in some spies to see the land. So they're right on the border, almost, almost right on the border of where they're going to go to the promised land. You know the story of the spies. That's not the point of this story. The point of this story is to get that final little distance to the promised land, they had to go through the land controlled and owned by the Edomites. And the Edomites said, yeah, no, you can't pass through. And they negotiate with them a little bit. And no matter what, they said, you can't pass through. It got to the place where they said, we won't even let our animals... Drink the water. We won't even drink the water until we'll pass through your land. Just let us pass through. The Edomites, the Israelites, the feud was ongoing. And they said, no way. You can't go. So if you go back and look at the history of that, you'll know they went from Kadesh. They had to go all the way back down south, go to the east, and then finally come back up and get on the other side of the Jordan River when they finally got to to travel across And it took you a long, long time. So they have a history, these Edomites and the Israelites, a long history. And when we look at the book of Obadiah is where we're at. We're going through the minor prophets. How many of you would like to read a complete book of the Bible and not have to take too much time? Well, if you read it this week, you know it's only 21 verses. There's only one chapter. So if you want to start bragging to people, you read a whole chapter or a whole book of the Bible, go to Obadiah. But if you study Obadiah, you're going to see that almost every verse is just packed full of information. And as with so many of these minor prophets, what they're prophesying then, 500 to 800 BC, somewhere in there, is still so relevant today. It's amazing. When they hear things about how nothing changes. God doesn't change, but you know, sinful people don't seem to change either. The Word of God says there's nothing new under the sun. The things that we deal with, they dealt with in so many ways. Cultures, everything, so different. So we're going to be looking at the book of Obadiah. And the name Obadiah simply means servant of the Lord or messenger of the Lord. And it's interesting, there are about... 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament. But we really don't have any idea which one of them wrote this book, if it was any of them. So this Obadiah is an unseen person. And he comes on the scene. And most of the time, as we go through these minor prophets and the major prophets, what you discover is this. God is speaking through these men. He's speaking to them, warning people. It's if He's saying, Okay, Victory, I've had enough. Time to get your act together. Here's what I expect you to do. I expect you to repent and come back to me or there's going to be some real problems here. I'm going to bring discipline or destruction. Well, this one's different. He is going to be addressing the Edomites, but it's almost as if he's doing it in such a way that it's going to encourage the Israelites. Because he's not going to tell the Edomites return to me and repent. He's going to tell them, I've had enough. I'm fed up. Total destruction is going to come your way. And we're going to see there is a pride and arrogance to the Edomites that God has really had it with. The title of the message was simply pride comes before destruction. Pride Comes before destruction. We've probably heard that phrase. We may not know where it came from, but this is the message that is being spoken, and God is saying, "Enough is enough." In chapter one, uh, chapter one, there's only one chapter. If you got your Bibles, you turn to it. It'll take you a little while. You might want to look to your table of contents because it's only two pages. But I encourage you to go there. Not all these scriptures are going to be on the screen. I'm going to read a number of them. Chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 starts out, The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. You know, you watch news sometimes and you see a news alert thing flashes. Well, that's kind of what this is. Obadiah gets a vision and he declares it. God has just sent me a message. News alert. Here it is. It's like, I'm going to talk about the Edomites. Listen, Israelites, and be encouraged. This foe that's been tormenting you forever, almost. It's time is up. It says, We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has, was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now there's a lot of imagery there that we might just think are flowery words from Obadiah. But you need to know a little bit about ancient Edom, the Edomites, the city that they were in. In the Greek, the word is translated Petra. You may have heard of that. Selah in the Hebrew. This place, Petra, was where they had their homes. I've got a couple of slides, and I'm probably getting ahead of the pictures there, so you go ahead and put up the first picture that you see. How many of you remember are, are, are fans of Indiana Jones? Anybody a fan of Indiana Jones? Come on. The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones. You may remember they were headed to this this city. They were headed to this city, and you see them riding horses through that narrow opening. And that narrow opening is the only way you could get to this ancient city of Petra. Made them feel a little bit secure. And when you got into this place, now go to the next picture and we'll get these out of the way. Petra has been voted as one of the seven wonders of the world. The, the Edomites did not build most of this. The nation that came after them and destroy, had destroyed them built a lot of what we see here. But as you come out of this narrow, narrow canyon that would be almost impassable for an army of any size. This is what you'd first see. And when it talks about their homes, go to the third picture, please. They built their homes in the cliffs up in the mountains. So you can see those verses when it talks about, you know, the, the, no matter where, they live in the clefts of the rocks. You make your homes at the heights. You say to yourselves, who can bring us down to the ground? The Lord says, though you soar like an eagle, make your nest among the stars. I'm going to bring you down. So there was a meaning behind these words as Obadiah the prophet is speaking to them, and we're going to eventually focus primarily on pride. And for these people, it wasn't just a pride of self-importance, like, you know, I'm all it, we're all it. It was a pride of self-sufficiency. I don't need God. We don't need God. We sometimes forget when we look at these people on the other side of the family tree, if Jacob and Esau were brothers, they were both under the covenantal blessing of God for Abraham. These people had been blessed whether they know it or not. And that blessing was upon them until they just plain filled with pride, decided after years and years, we don't need God. What would we need Him for? Guess what? We're now living in a culture and society that's becoming more like this every day. The people think we don't need God. We don't need God to direct us to tell us what's right or wrong. If we want to know what's right or wrong, we go to the government and ask them what's right or wrong. And if they don't like what we tell them, they change the laws. What's right or wrong? We don't have to seek God to know what to do. We don't need to have Him point out sin in our life. Why? Sin's irrelevant. There is no sin. Again, if something doesn't sound good, we declare it is good. We don't need God. There is no sin. What do we need Him for? We don't need a God to lean on. We don't need to lean, uh, God to lean on when, when, when we're grieving, when things are going bad, when things are going wrong. We don't need God. We got Dr. Phil. We got Oprah. We got Ellen. We got a million self-help books and we got all those wonders of modern psychology. What do you need God for? We don't need Him. Culture of self-sufficiency. If you look at Edom, you discover... God despises it. Pride does come before destruction. Throughout the scripture, God has made very, very clear that arrogance and pride are sin. If you looked in Proverbs, you'll see where it's found what I've been produ- speaking here. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and the haughty spirit before the fall. In James, in the New Testament, reminded us of this by saying, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Because of the pride of the Edomites, the self-sufficiency, the attitude that they had, they are blinded to the fact that God's blessings have been there for years. They're blinded and deceived. Deceived. And they're going to, we're going to look at five areas, and I'm going to read a few scriptures, and I'm always going to read the scriptures a little fast, so you might want to just jot down Obadiah. Chapter 1. The only one. And look at some of these things. The first place that they are totally deceived in is security that they've developed, manufactured on their own. I already showed you the pictures of where they were. They felt totally secure in their location. There is no army going to come, and they're not going to come through that narrow canyon. We'll just pick them off one after the other. No, nope, we're safe. Our homes are up in the rocks, in the cliffs. We've made, I mean, you can't burn my cliff. You can't burn these rocks. We're safe. Their security came of their own effort, their own strength, and they believed that they were totally secure. They felt that there was no enemy that could come and destroy that fortress that they lived in. It felt totally safe. They said, who in the world can bring me down to the ground? No one. They didn't realize that they were going to be fighting not against man, they were going to be fighting against God. And when you fight against God, you lose. And one day, every nation is going to know that God's in control that God's in charge. They trusted in their security. Second thing they trusted in is their wealth. We could do a little bit of a geography lesson, but some of you may have heard of the King's Highway in the ancient world in Israel. There was a major trade route that they called the King's Highway that you could go from the north to the south, trading to Egypt, all the way up into Assyria and Babylon. It was the, the road that you would, and it went right past Petra. So all this trade developed all kinds of wealth. In verse five, it says, "If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you! Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not just leave, would they not leave a few grapes?" What they're saying here is, we are so wealthy. Even if they come and take what they can carry away, we still got a lot left. There's no problem. Tells us Esau was ransacked and his hidden treasure pillaged, taken. God is saying, you guys don't understand. Your wealth, your riches is not going to do you a bit of good. All the stuff that you've got hidden away, sneaked away, hidden away in some special account that you think, ah, that one's safe. There's nothing safe. I'm going to take it all. It's all going to be lost. All of it. When I get through, these are words you never want to hear from God. When I get through with you, there's going to be nothing left. Nothing left. They trusted in their security and in their wealth. The third thing they trusted in was their allies. Verse 7 reads, All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread with you sit down and have a meal with you. They will trap you, but you will not even detect it. Because of their location that I just explained, because it was along the King's Highway, everybody wanted to be their ally. Everybody wanted to be able to use that primary trade route. So everybody was their ally. Everybody's offender a fender. You ever know anybody that wants to be your friend just so they can use you or take advantage of you? I hope that's never when one of you or me. But it happens. And they think, we've got all these powerful allies. Who in the world is this little Israel thing that we need to worry about? All those descendants... Of Jacob we have the most powerful allies in the world and God is saying you don't have a clue you are so deceived they are going to come and they're going to destroy you they are going to turn on you and they're going to destroy you take all your wealth it's coming you can count on it God says these very allies your so-called friends They're going to turn against you. They will deceive you, overpower you, and force you out of your land, and you won't even detect what's happening. His allies. God's saying, the allies aren't going to do you any good. The fourth one is their wisdom. They were proud of their wisdom. They had some very smart, intellectual people there. Matter of fact, in prophet Jeremiah, God even speaks about the wise men of Edom. Educated, smart. Great wisdom. We're so much smarter than the rest of the world. Who can out, out us? Who us? Who can overcome? No one's going to sneak up on us. We're so smart. You say, no, your wisdom? No, sorry, your wisdom's not going to protect you from anything. It's not going to happen. In verse 8, in that day, declares the Lord, I will not, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding, men in the mountains of Esau. They're coming down. Your security, your wealth, your wisdom, they're all going to be worthless. And the last one, they trusted in their military. We're the most powerful nation on earth. We've got this amazing military. What do we have to fear? Self-sufficiency. Verse 9, your warriors, your mighty warriors, your armies, will I not destroy them? They will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down to the slaughter. They had won many, many battles. They had a powerful military and a powerful army. And God is telling them, you know what? When the curtain's coming down, your army's not going to do you any good either. You can take all of that stuff, your security and your wealth and your wisdom. You can take all of that and, and your powerful allies. But when I come and make judgment... It's not going to help you a bit. None of them are going to be a match for God. The military. This nation, Edom. There may be nations today. We might even live in one of them who would boast about our security, our wealth, our amazing education our powerful allies that we have around the world. All of these things are powerful military. And think, we're good. We're safe. Edom did. And they totally were destroyed. And when we look through this, as you go into the rest of the chapter, God is really coming at them for their, their pride and their arrogance and really, probably more than anything else, not coming to the aid of who really is the family, their brothers, Israel. And when he comes, when they, when we, we get to this place, it's like this really all is about, you know what? You just can't stand to, alongside. I mean, how many of you have seen videos on TV or on YouTube or TikTok or whatever you watch all your videos on where somebody's getting beaten or robbed and mugged and they're filming it? doing nothing to help, just standing there watching and looking. They don't care. They don't care at all. What must God think of that attitude? Well, let me show you what He thought of that attitude with the Edomites and pray that it doesn't apply to us, but it might. When you get to verse 10 through 14... Well, I think I'll read them very quickly. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, in other words, because of the violence against Israel, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever, and on the day you stood aloof, the day you stood and just watched, while strangers carried off the wealth and foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth. He's going on. The prophet is speaking the words of God and says, I can't believe what you guys just did. These are your brothers. And they're being destroyed. Though you didn't literally do the destroying, you didn't literally attack, you're as guilty as those who did because you didn't do anything to help them. You didn't stand up for justice or righteousness. And not only that, when the army left, you went into the city through the gates and you picked up all that you could and took from them their wealth. And if that's not bad enough, you went and you sat at the crossroads with your army. And as the people were trying to flee from Jerusalem, you attacked them, you killed them. Some of them you just captured and you gave them to the conquerors to make slaves out of them. God's saying, how could you? How could you participate in such evil and injustice and unrighteousness? And he says, you're guilty. You could have been the ones who attacked and destroyed and burned. Because you did nothing. You did nothing. You stood and watched. And to make it even worse, you went and took advantage of their situation. You rejoiced in what was happening to your brothers in Christ. Indifference do a whole message down this road. I won't, I promise. But indifference and rejoicing. Have you ever, never spoke it out loud because you're smarter than that, but rejoiced when evil or bad things happen to brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you ever thought they kind of deserved that? That'll show them. They've had it made for so long. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, we see what God thinks of that attitude. That attitude of not, comp- not caring, not having compassion. When they were destroying their own brothers. We need to be willing to stand for what is right. There's correct ways to do it. There's wrong ways to do it. But we need to stand for righteousness. And church, we got to believe that as persecution comes and the way this country is headed, we are going to see more persecution. And we're going to have more opportunities to stand for righteousness. Or cower and let it go. That violence of silence. Not saying anything. Not getting involved. Not speaking up. When you watch those videos of people getting robbed or mugged or attacked or beaten online from a group of other young men, young people, young women. When you watch that video, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, what would I do if I would have been there? Would I have tried to intervene? Would I have tried to save that person, save those people? Or would I have said, I'm not going near that because then they'll turn on me. You know, Christ went to a cross and was crucified for us. Can we possibly stand by when we see evil everywhere? There are so many things that we could bring into the political realm and I'm intentionally trying to avoid that. But there are so many things we can't remain silent on as a church, as individuals. Where unrighteousness and evil are, we need to voice an opinion with wisdom, with the love of the Father, but not in silence, ever in silence. The Lord gets real specific with the Edomites and He levels three charges against them quickly. The first charge, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of disaster. He's saying, you know what? You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have went into those gates. You shouldn't have went into the city to try to pick up whatever you could steal and take from them. You should not have never did that. You should be helping your brothers instead of going in there and helping yourselves for their goods. First accusation. Second one, you should not, uh, you should not look down on your brothers in their day of misfortune. Obvious. You didn't help them. You let the enemies attack. You thought they were your allies attacking, so you didn't want to tick off any allies. Your allies are going to turn on you completely. And the third accusation, the third you should not, wait at the crossroads and cut down their fugitives, cut down your people of Israel as they're trying to escape. Hand them over into slavery. It's like God says, you know what? Three strikes, you're out. Remember the verse I said, you're going to be destroyed forever? Forever. Somewhere around 500, 600 B.C., the Edomites disappeared from planet Earth. You look on a map, you'll see nothing about Edom. You'll see nothing about the Edomites. There were some who came from Edom at the time of Christ, but they were no longer considered a nation or a people. They were gone. God had taken care of them. He had judged them. And as we continue on in verses 15 through 21, we read about the day of the Lord, that phrase. Some people say if you look at the timing in the prophets, and sometimes it's hard to tell exactly when they're ministered, but many think that Obadiah was the first guy to use those words, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a metaphor when God comes in judgment. It's used as a metaphor throughout the Old Testament when he came against nations or cities or groups of people. It's the day of the Lord. But it's also used in Revelation. It's also used in other prophetic words to when Jesus is coming back. It's going to be the day of the Lord. And one thing you see always in the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes, whether it was to nations in the past, cities in the past, or when Jesus comes to return, two things always take place. There is destruction and judgment against evil. And there is salvation and protection for the righteous. When we look at these things, we need to understand when the day of the Lord comes, I mentioned this in one of the other ones in recent weeks, it's not all good stuff. For believers, it's amazing. Our Savior and King is coming. If we're still alive when He comes, it says we're going to be taken in the up into the air and meet Him. Awesome. New Jerusalem, going to rule for a thousand years. Awesome. But we neglect the other side for those who have rejected Christ that are still alive at that time or those who have rejected Christ through their death in this life. Judgment and destruction come. That's why it's so important we understand salvation is for all. It's available to all. But it requires us to accept and receive the gift. Acknowledging that we are sinners and need a Savior. And that Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh and He is that Savior and that He died for our sins. And He was raised again from the dead and He sits in heaven next to the Father praying for you and me. If we've never done that, we are on the wrong side of what's going to take place on the Lord's day we will be condemned to separation from God forever in the place the Bible calls hell. A place of torment for eternity. Accepting Christ. On the day of the Lord, it's going to be a celebration for those that know Jesus. Spending eternity with Him. Salvation is the first and most important thing. We learn from Obadiah there's some other things that are important. Pride, goes before destruction we need to guard our hearts from pride god humbled himself and became a servant we need to walk in humility guarding our hearts it's easy to come to get filled with pride for most most anything and almost all sin most sin comes out of the root of pride we need to guard our hearts we need to realize and live our lives in such a way that we acknowledge and know that we need god it's not self-sufficiency My sufficiency is in Christ. Without Him, we're nothing. With Him, we can do all things through Christ. We need to guard ourselves, and this is going to be more challenging in the days ahead, against this attitude of indifference. Just keeping our mouths shut or staying out of things because we know it could bring some problems into our own lives. I'm not going to be bothered with that I'm just going to stay over here and do this, that, and the other thing. Indifference. God does not love indifference. He doesn't like indifference. It appears He hates indifference. He considers it sin. To the evil that's all around us and it's growing, becoming more obvious in their culture. You know, it's coming to truth that things that are good, they call evil, and the things that are evil they now call good. We can't be indifferent. And we need to really count the cost because when we speak up, when we get involved, there will be consequences. You know, it's kind of interesting. In Afghanistan, I got a, a report from a brother who's in contact. Over 500 house leaders have supposedly been martyred, killed, murdered in Afghanistan since we left those 500 house churches have exploded into many, many, many more house churches. What's going on in Ukraine is causing an explosion in Christianity, not only in Ukraine, but in Poland and surrounding areas. God is clear in history, has built his church on the blood of the martyrs. I really don't want to be one of them, but we're going to have consequences. Who are we going to put our trust in? Ourselves or the Lord? Well, it's going to be hard to say have a blessed Father's Day after this, isn't it? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank You and praise You for Your Word. God, even though it was spoken centuries and centuries ago, there is so much that we can glean from it that it applies in our own lives. God, we thank You and praise You that we serve a mighty God, an unchanging God. Lord, that Your Word is true. Lord, we acknowledge before You that Your Word is very clear. There will come a day that every tongue will confess that jesus is lord that every knee will bow to that name lord no matter how mighty how powerful how wealthy a nation is that when you decide to bring it to its, bring it to its knees it's going to happen so lord we pray for an awakening a spiritual awakening we pray for spiritual revival amongst your churches God, we pray for the harvest that's out there to begin to be harvested in greater ways. We pray that you would give us a holy boldness, just bathed in your love, to share the good news of the gospel and advance your kingdom. Lord, as we go today, a day where many, many families gather, and even as families gather, there are many families where dad's gone. He's not there anymore. For many of us, it's the first Father's Day where we're experiencing that. Lord, we thank you for fathers. We thank you for dads. We thank you for the good memories of those that have passed. We thank you for each one of the men that are here that are husbands and fathers. We pray, God, for your grace as we fulfill the call on our lives to be the kind of men that you want us to be. And as we go, we pray for your protection, your covering over us as many will be traveling. God, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.